Well, good morning and welcome again. It's really a joy to be with you all this morning, sincerely. Um, I was with a handful of you all this past week at a conference where we got to hear really good preaching and sing together and be with thousands of other Christians to learn and to grow, and it was a really fun and exciting thing. But for my money, there's nothing better than the local church where you show up uh, with people who love you and who you love and who know you and who you know to encourage one another and to hear the gospel together, to worship together. And really, when you think about it, going to church on Sunday mornings is one of the most simple yet radical things that Christians do. Uh, For 2,000 years, while our neighbors and friends and family have slept in or recovered from Saturday night or tried to look ahead to their work week and get a head start, we get up early and we go to homes or to buildings or to secret places where people won't find out about what, what we're doing. And, and for 2,000 years, Christians have done this every Sunday. And it's what one Christian named Absalom Jones was doing one Sunday morning in the early 1790s. He was a member of St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he woke up one Sunday morning and got to church and was surprised to find that on that particular morning, he and the other black members of his congregation were no longer allowed to sit in the normal pews. They were told that they had to go to the newly constructed balcony in the back of the building and that the normal pews were reserved for white members. Despite the injustice, Jones and other black members of the church were willing to submit to this request. But Jones, as Albert Rabiteau, who's a church historian, puts it, was a dignified man in his late 40s, and he asked the usher to wait until the prayer ended. But the white man insisted he moved immediately and motioned for another usher to help lift Jones from his knees. And as soon as the prayer was over, Jones and the rest of the black worshipers stood and walked out of the church in a body. The incident led those members to found Bethel Church, which they built with their own hands and paid for with their own money. And even though they built it and paid for it themselves, the Methodist denomination claimed ownership of it a claim that Richard Allen and other members disputed all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which decided in their favor. And not long after that, in 1816, there at Bethel Church, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, which still exists to this day, was formed, and it elected Richard Allen, one of those members, as its first president, becoming the first formerly black Christian denomination. Now, this story is both a comedy and a tragedy, in the classical senses of those words. It's a a comedy, a story with a happy ending in the sense that Jones and Alan and those other members knew who they were and whose they were. And without sinning, without anger, without pride, they would not let those white Christians erase their dignity. And they got up and they walked out and said, we'll start our own church and our own denomination. But of course, in a much more significant sense, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that this church denied by its actions the very gospel it preached and denied by its actions the world-changing power of Galatians 3.28. This incident and others like it not only contributed to a split in that church, but have contributed to the segregation of churches in America for over 200 years since. But Galatians 3.28 points us to this radical and revolutionary power of the gospel to not only reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another across racial lines, class lines, gender lines, and all other kinds of lines that would otherwise be barriers. 
Galatians 3.28 shows us that to be one with Christ is to be one with everybody else who is one with Christ. It shows us a power and a beauty that I think the world desperately wants and that only the church truly has access to. And before I read Galatians 3.28, and you can be turning there with me every week, whoever's preaching here at King's Cross reads the Bible and then says, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds by saying, thanks be to God. So if you're newer and you're not quite sure what we're saying, that's what we say. And I want to just pause. I was reminded this week that to hear the word of God read aloud in your language without fear of who might be listening is a privilege that about 5 billion people in the world today don't have. Whether because the Bible's never been translated into their language or because they're gathering in secret and have to be concerned about who might hear. And so when we, when we come and read this word, this life-giving, living, and active word, we, we don't just read the Bible, right? It reads us and it changes us. It has the power to do that. And so when we say, thanks be to God, we mean it sincerely and we want to say it like we mean it. So Galatians 3.28, the Holy Spirit writes through the Apostle Paul, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning makes two claims. The second one, you are all one in Christ, logically comes first. Uh, and it's connected to the claim that is written first, but logically comes second, that there is neither X nor Y. And they're connected by this word since. Whenever you read the Bible, by the way, especially these New Testament letters, those connecting words, since, but, because, therefore, also, are really key words to look at to try to get your mind into the logic of the author. So this fundamental claim, the one that's logically first, but that is written second, that you are all one in Christ Jesus, it really has two ideas baked into it. The first is that you are in Christ, and the second is that you are all one because you are all in Christ. So if you were to tear this passage apart and just build it back together in a logical sequence, I think it would go like this. First, you're in Christ. Second, you're all one in Christ. And third, therefore, there is neither Greek nor Jew, male, uh, slave nor free, male nor female. And that's how we're going to take this passage in this sermon, those three points. So point one, you are all in Christ. You are in Christ. Last week, we talked about the reality of union with Christ. By faith, we are brought into union with Christ, and our baptism is the symbol, the sign, that physical reality that correlates to that spiritual reality through baptism. We put on Christ, we said, we saw that through faith and in baptism, we become united with Christ, and Christ becomes our new identity. Right? He is now the fundamental reality of, of who we are. But what was your old identity? We looked last week at, at several things that we tried to find our identity in, right? Our work, our marriage, our money, possessions, whatever. But the Bible tells us that ultimately, there are really only two identities that you can have. There may be several other things about you. There may be other things that you try to put your identity in, but fundamentally, every person's identity is located in one of two places. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And all people are born in Adam. Adam, read about him in Genesis 2 and 3, the first man, uh, he 
was the representative of all of humanity as the first man, and he sinned. He transgressed God's law. He turned his heart away from God, and by sinning, he plunged not only himself, but all of his offspring into disarray and disrepair. And there's two things that we all inherit from Adam. We inherit guilt and corruption. There's lots of things that you can inherit, some good, some bad. You can inherit uh, money. You can inherit a house. You can inherit looks. When I was a freshman in high school or so, maybe eighth grade, I was in my dad's hometown, a small little coal town in eastern Kentucky called Hazard, Kentucky, and I was playing golf at the local nine-hole golf course with a cousin of mine, and all of a sudden, this guy in a golf cart just comes wheeling across the fairway and, and goes, hey, and I looked at him, I was, I've never seen this guy before in my life, I have no idea what's about to happen, and he just looks at me and goes, you Glenn's boy? I am indeed Glenn's boy. I've never seen this guy in my life. I have no idea who he was, but apparently I inherited something from my father that made it clear that I was his son. And we all inherit something from Adam that makes it clear that we are in him. We are his sons and daughters. And in particular, what we inherit is guilt and corruption. Nowhere does the Bible teach this more clearly than in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 15 says that by the one man's trespass, that's Adam's sin, the many died. Death came to everybody because of Adam's trespass. Verse 16, from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, through one trespass, there is condemnation. For who? For everyone. Verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Paul gives us five ways of basically saying the same thing, that because of Adam's sin, you and I and everybody else are guilty and corrupt. The teaching of scripture is that Adam is the representative of the human race, that his failure was a failure for the entire race, and that as a result, we were born guilty, leading to judgment and corrupt, which leads us to repeat his pattern, and all this finally leads in death. What we're talking about is the doctrine that theologians call original sin, and it is wildly offensive to our sensibilities. It's offensive on at least two counts. The first is that it seems unfair, and the second is that it just doesn't really make sense. So take those in reverse order. It, it just doesn't seem to make sense. What does Adam's sin have to do with me? This guy that lived who knows how long ago in some you know, mystical part of the earth we know almost nothing about. It's written in this strange you know, form in the first few chapters of the Bible, and you're telling me that I'm going to be held accountable for his sin? It just doesn't seem to make sense. But I would suggest that if we look at the evidence in the world, it makes more sense than the alternatives. Hans Meduam is a Nigerian-American scholar at Calvin College, and in writing on original sin, he, he says that examining ourselves and those around us, we see flawed, morally deficient people and lives tainted by sin, often subtle, sometimes flagrant, but ever-present. We cannot deny, try as we might, the ubiquity of sin. It is everywhere, from the Americas to Africa, from the nursery to the nursing home, every single place that we look, we see, as he puts it, lives tainted by sin. Now, people have been trying to deny this for centuries. Uh, a really important guy who tried to deny it is a guy named Pelagius. Now, if you know much about church history, you know this guy has a heresy named after him, uh, which is not a great place to be. But Pelagius said, we're not all born guilty. Every person is basically a new Adam. 
We don't inherit Adam's guilt. We all have the same opportunity. We're all born a blank slate and we're neutral and we get to choose good or evil. We get to choose whether to take the fruit, so to speak, or not. But the, the, the challenge that I would pose to Pelagius and that many did is that if we're all born a blank slate, how likely is it that every single person who has ever lived chose wrongly? It's, it feels like a coin landing on heads however many billion times in a row. It, it's, that is harder for me to believe than the doctrine of original sin, which says that we sin because we're sinners. And we're born guilty and corrupt, and that's the reason for all the sin in the world. But Pelagius was a lawyer, and the basis of his complaint against original sin was the other common complaint, that it is unjust. Uh, you know, sometimes we... we say things that we act like people were just really dumb a long time ago. It's like, well, now we understand, understand how unjust this is. Those early church people, they didn't get it. They didn't understand that it appeared unjust because they were, they were really old or something. Uh, but in the 400s, he was complaining that it would be unjust for God to account someone else's sins to me. Rather than arguing against that, which, by the way, the, the main point there is that that Pelagius had some sort of idea of justice that existed apart from God, and he was trying to hold God to the standard of his view of justice, rather than recognizing that God is justice, and that justice must be defined according to how God defines it. But let's just say for a minute that he's right. Okay, let's just concede the point. Fair enough. It's unjust for God to account somebody else's sins to me. But if I'm going to say that that's unjust then I also have to say it's unjust for him to account somebody else's righteousness to me. And that is the very heart of the gospel. That though we were unjust and unrighteous and sinful, Christ was perfectly just and righteous and sinless in our place. And that through faith, his record is given to or imputed is the, the theological word for that to us. In Adam, we have all inherited guilt and corruption, which leads to sin and death. But in Christ, we have inherited a righteousness by faith that leads to love and to life. For this reason, Meduim, again, says that the fall is the midwife of the gospel. Without original sin, we can have no good news. If you were never in Adam, you can never be in Christ. But by God's grace, you were in Adam, and now you are in Christ. You've been baptized into him, and through faith, he is your new identity. The gospel means that most foundationally, most fundamentally, of primary importance is not your gender, race, class, marital status, or anything else about you. It's that you are in Christ. And point two, there's a collective aspect to this. You are all one. In Christ, Paul says, you're not just united with him, but you're united with all others who are also united with him. And this is just an objective truth. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are already one objectively with every other person who is in him. Now, you're all one is a, a phrase that sounds great in the abstract, right? It sounds kind of spiritual and ethereal. We don't really totally know what it means. We're all one, right? Can't we just get along? But as we see in this text, it has some radical, tangible implications. And that leads us quickly to point three, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. It is said that devout Jewish men in antiquity would often begin each day with a prayer. They would say, thank you, God, 
that I am not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Boasting in your race or in your class or in your gender is as old as the fall. (laughs) And the gospel radically cuts the legs out from under it. Paul says three things here. First, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. He obliterates racial division and boasting. I am not better than any other person because of my race or ethnicity, and I cannot boast in that, nor is any other person better than me because of their race or ethnicity, nor can they boast in that. There is no racial division, Paul says, in the church. Second, he says there's neither slave nor free. He says there's no class division in Christ. This is absolutely radical. Uh, there's another little New Testament letter, a really short one called Philemon. And the letter of Philemon is written by Paul to a guy named Philemon. And it's about a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now, we don't know all the details, but I don't, if, if Onesimus was already a Christian before he ran away and he ran to Paul because he knew Paul, obviously Paul knew Philemon, but like exactly how it all works out, we're not sure historically. But we do know that, that Paul... Uh, did two things that, were, that are totally radical. The first one is really offensive to us. And it actually seems to contradict the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law says if you catch a runaway slave, don't send him back. He's free or she's free. Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon. That's radically offensive to us. Why would he do that? Why would he, why would he send him back? But he sent him back with a letter and the letter said, from, a letter from Paul to Philemon, the owner, said, when you receive Onesimus back, don't receive him as a slave. Receive him as a brother. He's your equal. You're, you have no right to own him. You're both in Christ. You're one. There's no class division in Christ. Third category, there's no gender divisions. Sociologist Rodney Stark estimates that in the second century, roughly two-thirds of Christians were women. (laughs) Two-thirds. Michael Kruger, who's a church historian and theologian, says that women left the religious systems of the Greco-Roman world with which they were familiar and consciously decided to join the burgeoning Christian movement. No one forced them to do so. No one made them become Christian. So why did they? Because... This shouldn't be news to you that in the ancient world, women were treated as less than full citizens. They were treated as, in some parts, less than full human beings. And in the church of Jesus Christ, they were told, you are on equal footing with men. There's a place for you here. You're not a second-class citizen. In the church, they and everybody else was treated with radical love and dignity and respect. Who modeled this better than Jesus? Even It struck me this week that even before Jesus was born, who did the announcement of his birth go to? It went to dirty, unclean, poor shepherds who lived their lives on the margins. And it went to pagan astrologers, people who were outside of the inner circle of God's people. And then he grows up, he calls disciples, he calls uneducated fishermen. He calls tax collectors who were traitors. They were hated by everybody. His friends, he's constantly hanging out with prostitutes and formerly demon-possessed people and lepers, quite a crowd. 
All of these people are outcasts that Jesus is bringing in. And Paul is telling us that the church that that guy founded ought to imitate him. That we ought to look like his group looked. In our day, we could add to Paul's list, I think. There are other categories that are relevant. We could add there's neither married nor single. Uh, It always grieves me when I hear from my single friends that in churches that they've been in, that they've felt that they've been treated like they're not full participants in the church because they're single. Our Lord was single. (laughs) The Apostle Paul presumably was single. Marriage nor singleness makes you a first-class citizen in the church. We could add kids or no kids. You're not you're not better, you're not inherently more mature just because you have kids or because you don't have kids. Uh, Rich or poor, right? We've been reading through James in our discipleship groups and this is obviously relevant. Republican or Democrat. Uh, Paul's logic here tells us that we have no right, we have no right to exclude somebody either formally or in our hearts because of who they voted for. If we just, we just t- tell ourselves, I can't believe that a Christian would vote for that guy or for the other guy, or I can't believe that a Christian would vote for either guy. And Paul's saying there's no room for that in the church. There's no divide between English-speaking people and people who speak other languages. There's no divide in Christ between citizens and immigrants. There's, there's, this, um, there's this controversy going on right now. This is probably a really niche thing that I don't know if anybody has heard about, but there's this, this controversy going on about the concept of Christian nationalism, which basically says that we should formally make America a Christian nation and everything that would, that would entail. But the folks who are leading that charge are also very opposed to immigration. They want all immigrants out you know, yesterday. And the great irony is that if America really wanted an influx of Christians, it should open its doors wide to immigrants from South and Central America and from the Middle East, because the ones who come here are far more likely to be Christians than the people who are already here. In Christ, there's no divide. Now, God has made you the way you are, and he's called you to whatever station in life he has called you to, and the same is true for everyone else here. And if he accepts each one of us, not because of anything that we have done or contributed, but simply because of what Christ has done, then two things must be true. One, we cannot boast in any aspect of our identity. I cannot boast in any aspect of some secondary identity characteristic. And second, We cannot exclude others because of any other characteristic. Now, I want to give you quickly two points that this does not mean and two two things that it does mean. One, it does not mean that we equate neutral identity factors like the ones that Paul has listed and sin. I can hear the questions that may be coming up in some of your minds, and it this passage has been misused to teach some of these things. But the, the big thing that some of you may be thinking is, what does this mean for people who identify as LGBTQ? And the answer is that we cannot equate morally neutral descriptors like the ones Paul describes here with actions that the Bible calls sinful. Should we love everybody? Yes. Yes. Should we welcome anybody 
into the doors of our church? Yes. Into the doors of our home? Yes. Should we be a place of love and support and grace for the same sex attracted who are pursuing a, a life of holiness, for people struggling with gender dysphoria who are trying to figure things out? Absolutely. We must do all of those things. But people whose lives are characterized by behavior that the Bible calls sin are not in Christ. And this passage is about unity in Christ. The second thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that all these secondary identity descriptors disappear. Paul is not advocating colorblindness. He's not saying that we're all just the exact same and we shouldn't ever talk about our differences. The Bible doesn't do that. The vision of heaven that we get in the Bible is of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who presumably have kept their tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? They don't just lose that when they come into glory. God has created a wonderfully diverse world. And that's a beautiful thing for us to celebrate and glory. And so all of those, those parts about you, your, your race, your gender, whatever it may be, don't disappear when you come to church or when you become a Christian. But here's two things that this does mean for us. It does mean that those differences take a back seat. It does mean that, that, that they're no longer primary. You know, if we could, maybe this lacks nuance, but if we could divide up our world, often we see folks more on the, the right side of things politically, more conservative folks want to pretend that the differences aren't there, right? Like if we just don't talk about this aspect of history in our schools, then everybody will get along well. And so we just need to ignore these realities. On the other hand, you have more progressive folks who say you need to elevate those things to the primary importance in your life. That is who you are. That's fundamentally your identity. And the gospel comes in and cuts across both of those things, says they're still there. We should acknowledge them, but they're not primary. And when they're not primary, we can all come together in a greater identity. The second thing that this does mean for us, just to bring this home a little bit, it means that if we're honest with ourselves, we've failed in our hearts, we're no better than St. George's Methodist Church in 1790 Philadelphia. You and I are just as prone to boast in ourselves and exclude others as they were, just in more socially acceptable ways. Uh, again, I, second time I mentioned this, but they just go together so well. We've been walking through James in our discipleship groups here, and this week's Reading talked about showing partiality or favoritism for people based on being rich or poor. And uh, that the word favoritism or partiality is a really interesting word. That the, the Greek word could be literally translated receiving the face. James is saying, don't receive the face when people come in. So what's he, he's saying, don't divide people up into categories based on their external physical appearance, appearances. Don't receive some based on these secondary characteristics and exclude others. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, we all receive the face. We do. We see people and we make snap judgments about them based on their race, based on their income status, based on their politics, based on how they school their kids, based on just lifestyle choices. We all do this. And when we do it, it grieves the Holy Spirit, it denies the power of Christ's death, and it empties the church of any prophetic power that we have to give the world something that it desperately wants. The good news, the gospel, is that God did not receive the face with us. 
He did not look at us and decide whether to receive us or not based on our merits or based on some identity factor. He looked at us and said, I'm going to receive you because I love you, and I'm going to make the way to receive you through Christ. And that gospel, that reality makes us all one in Christ. And the question for us is, how do we live into that? There's this objective reality that, that these divisions aren't there, but we still experience them. Like, how do we get from A to B? How do we live into this reality? I think it's by two things. By coming around our shared identity and by coming around our shared mission. Our shared identity that we're Christians. Primarily, who you are is a Christian. And our shared mission, which is to glorify God and make disciples. Now, if you're like me, uh, and you grew up in the 90s, probably one of your favorite movies as a kid was Remember the Titans. Uh, there's this amazing scene, you know, at the end of the movie where Gary Bertier, the star linebacker, one of the white players on the team, has been in a car wreck and is paralyzed, spoiler alert. And uh, his best friend on the team, Julius, who is black and who was formerly his great enemy, walks into the hospital room and the nurse says, only Ken's allowed in here. And Gary says, Alice, are you blind? <laughs> Don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. And it points back to this beautiful piece of foreshadowing earlier in the movie where they're getting on the bus for camp. And it's the most tense, you know, just like you can feel the tension watching the movie. And, and Coach Boone, played by Denzel Washington, is having his first real interaction with Gary Bertier. And he's, he tells him to take a good look at his parents and to take a good look at his mom because he says, when you get on that bus, you don't have a mama anymore. You've got your brothers on your team and you've got your daddy. And he says, you know who your daddy is, right? And he just, he makes him tell him, yes, you are, sir, you're my daddy. And of course, at the moment, he's painting, he's casting this vision of family that could not have been farther from their experience. These guys hated each other. But eventually, they come together Around what? Around a shared identity. They put on a jersey and they're all titans. And they come together around a shared mission, which is, in Coach Boone's words, be perfect, win every game. Last week we saw that through faith and in baptism we have put on Christ like a jersey, like a uniform. When we see each other, when we relate to each other, we do so through Christ. We are on the same team, we have the same identity, and we have a shared mission, which is to make disciples. And if we live into this, if we live into our shared identity and mission, when the world sees us, it will see a church that doesn't destroy each other every four years when another election rolls around. It'll see a church where the wealthy are giving generously to care for the needs of the poor in the congregation. It'll see a community where single people are regularly at the dinner table of married couples and families and where those parents are regularly getting date nights because the single folks say, let me take care of your kids. It'll see a, a community where young and old, black and white and other people with different styles who dress differently, who talk differently, who act differently, who have different preferences, genuinely come together and love and receive one another and defer to the preferences of others. It'll see a place that looks like a family and who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? This is the hope of the world, and we have it, so let's give it to them.